So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 48 of Archaeology and Ale, a free monthly public archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. This month, our guest speaker is Chris Atkinson, who will be talking about charcoal production in West and South Yorkshire here in England. Thank you very much. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve Hollings and on behalf of Archaeology in the City, I will welcome everybody to our first of the new series of Archaeology Nail Lectures. Just say thank you. Say thank you to Emily for so graciously sort of giving us this uh, venue free of charge. But on the basis that there's so many people here today, they're actually going to take a nice turn over the bar. So uh, we should be on commission. Uh, this is the first of the 23-24 series of events. And we intend to carry on till at least the 25th of May. After that, we don't know what's going to happen. So we're going to enjoy ourselves uh, for the rest of the year. I'm delighted to welcome... Are you? One, <laughs> one on the basis that we were sat here a year ago when Sun Muppet, me, organised this event to be on Halloween night when no one could come out in the pouring rain. And I was desperately trying to sell Chris. It didn't really matter that there was only six people here because we'd catch up everybody on the podcast. And I felt really bad about it. So I'm delighted that everybody's here. Well, I'm terrified this time. <laughs> it was easier last time. So without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to, to Chris. Chris Atkinson is going to tell you all about charcoal. Mm, my PhD. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I can't see the projection screen for all the people. And, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, Chris Atkinson doing my PhD at the uh, Department of Archaeology, University of Sheffield, funded by the White Rose College of Arts and Humanities. And I'm just under halfway because I'm doing it part time. Uh, so this is very much uh, what I've been up to so far, rather than the the complete deal. So. You've got to come back. <laughs> yeah, probably. Oh. <laughs> Charcoal the revenge. <laughs> so, um, as it says there at the bottom, if you can see it, a landscape and environmental study of historic 
charcoal production in West and South Yorkshire is the uh, is the official title. Um, but before I go any further, what is charcoal and what do we use it for? Well, as it says there, charcoal production is the process of removing all moisture and volatile constituents from wood. So things like tree sap, for example, um, through burning in a low oxygen setting. We can then use that fuel, that charcoal that you can see in the top right hand corner there for smelting the um, bronze, iron, all the rest of it. So there's a, if you can see the picture on the bottom left-hand corner, that's a, a woodland called Harcastle Crags near Hebden Bridge. And that's where uh, the, the department's archaeology gang were out there on a community um, excavation and project back in 2017, I think it was. They, as part of a weekend of charcoal burning, iron smelting and excavation of a charcoal burning platform, we were demonstrating to the public, you know, woodland heritage, if you like. And so they constructed, much like the video that you saw at the beginning here, of things going on in the Aberdale Industrial Hamlet, they were demonstrating how iron was smelted in the Iron Age. So Louis and uh, a volunteer there working hard on the bellows. In the middle there, you can, uh, no, that's, in the middle's Louis, on the left is Benoit. Um, uh, he has the iron bloom produced at the end of that um, smelt. On the right, of course, we're probably more common with using charcoal for barbecues, whether it is to completely vitrify our food or send us off to the toilet later because we haven't cooked it for long enough. But, but the, that's uh, what we use it for mostly um, in our households nowadays. But of course, historically, it was used in the um, uh, textile industries, um, particularly for wool combing. It was a preferred source of fuel to heat up the combs beneath the um, that were beneath the, the the sheep's wool, so you could freely comb this wool to get all of the um, greases and impurities out of it to make it makes it make it ideal for textile. So a brief history of charcoal production, very brief. Uh, probably archaeologically, our first kind of evidence of people actually using charcoal for something is probably cave paintings. Um, and if you're into your popular culture, cave paintings still going on in children's literature. The Gruffalo's Child, for example, uses charcoal to draw the, the big mean mouse after she is, uh, she's... Um, the, the mouse is described to her by the Gruffalo, of course. Um, but as we get into historic times, then we actually have a patron saint of charcoal burners, Saint Alexander of Kamana, which is in uh, modern day Turkey. Uh, very much. Oh, I'm sorry, did I get that wrong? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, very much living um, as an outsider to the society there until they required a new bishop of the area. And all the, the noble, the good, the rich and famous stepped forth. Uh, but it was this Alexander 
the charcoal burner who was kind of pushed forward by the crowd and said, it should be him. He, he, loves, he loves the Bible. He loves religion. He should be the guy. And he's um, you know, very humble. Um, unfortunately for him, however, he came a cropper with Diocletian's um, persecution of Christians and ended up on a fire himself uh, between 275 to 300 AD, somewhere in there, which is not very, not very pleasant for him. Um, some of our earliest depictions of actual charcoal production, though, come in 1540 in the illustrations here in a document called Dilla Pyrotechnica. Apologies, I'm not Italian. Um, but uh, the top image there is of uh, an individual or individuals um, producing charcoal below ground, digging a charcoal pit, a coal pit, a pit kiln, a pit stead. They all have all sorts of different names and they're interchangeable. Um, as time progresses, they also have the technique of, and I can't read them now, but mound kiln, <laughs> uh, charcoal half, clamp, and whatever the first one is on that on that uh, on that line, <laughs> but you can see that's very much an above ground technique for creating charcoal. Um, and we have numerous historical accounts for charcoal being produced. One of the earliest ones in in England, at least, is related to Apsley Guys in Bedfordshire, uh, 969 AD, the old coal pit where the three boundaries go together. Yeah, thanks, Rackham. Um, and then we have some closer to home, Denbydale and Kirklees in 1466, the, the said woods to cut down coal and spring. Uh, so we have all these references to charcoal production and also in some cases where it's going. So there's one at the bottom there by John Evelyn uh, in writing in the 1600s about it going into the forges, going to London, being used for chemical, uh, chemical fires as well. And charcoal production is very much the driving kind of, um, well, fuel source for the Industrial Revolution and continued to be so right up until really the 1850s uh, when by that stage um, railway had been established, canal networks had been established and with that it was easier to transport coal and coke around the nation and so charcoal production which is labour intensive and time consuming compared to digging coal out of the ground and just setting it on fire, um, it went out of favour. But how was charcoal produced? Well, what we're looking at here, uh, in fact, I'm going to go back just to this slide here. Um, there's been, um, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, I've forgotten the guy's name. Cohen de Force and Co. in Belgium, uh, from the, the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences, has been doing a fair bit of work looking at um, charcoal production sites in the Netherlands and Belgium, and has actually managed to get a lot of funding to do a lot of radiocarbon dates of sites recognized as charcoal pits, coal pits, the below ground production sites for charcoal, as well as the above ground sites. And um, they very much see, or they, they see in their results for that region that charcoal production was being undertaken below ground right the way up until the 1300s, after which the technique, the decision 
was made to start producing it above ground. So, yeah, interesting kind of change in their um, production techniques. So what we're looking at here is very much um, how they did it from around about the 1300s onwards, if we're, if we're kind of superimposing the results of Netherlands and Belgium to England. Um, so here we have a site in North Dean Woods. We did this as part of um, a celebrating Woodland Heritage Project in the South Pennines. This again was in 2017. And um, we had permission to dig and actually create our own charcoal burning platform. So as you can see in the back, that edge, we cut into the gentle slope there and all the excess soil from that we piled up in this area to create an oval circular level platform onto which we then took our chopped wood and constructed that chimney, that stack you can see there. And then with all the wood, piled that up on top and with a hole in the top there, once the turf had gone on, we dropped embers down for it to start to catch a light and then buried the whole thing and sealed it all up. So that over uh, 48 hours, we kind of monitored it and made bromance and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, um, and watched this thing simmer away, patched up the holes every now and then, um, because of course the soil burns away, air gets in, and the last thing you want is a bonfire. So you just got to patch those holes up again. <clears throat> and then at the end, we're left with all that lovely charcoal on the ground there. So that in essence is how it's done, really. Monitoring it, reducing oxygen flow. And then at, right at the end, you start to open a few holes into it, pour water in, seal it up again. And then that starts to quench the, the fire, uh, ready for extracting all the charcoal at the end. How do you identify these sites though? Uh, they can be a bit of a pain to identify. They're even worse to photograph, as you might tell by those photos there. What the hell am I looking at? Um, but they're, they're, they're described as charcoal burning platforms. Um, an area of flattened or compacted ground used for charcoal burning. So here we have a photo. Hopefully you can see a sort of circular shape in the middle there. So a very steep slope and they've cut into the hillside and created this platform. And this is a place called Cold Side Oaks in the upper Derwent Valley, not far from Slippery Stones, if you know it. Uh, the bottom left one there is a little harder to see, believe it or not, but it's again, circular in there. Um, gently sloping ground. Um, but this is a place called Shipley Glen near Saltaire. And the bottom right one is probably the easiest one to see. Um, it's again, steep slope um, constructed into the side of the hill. So you can see the flat surface there curving around. And this is a place called Callis Wood near Hebden Bridge. And this one stands out nice and clearly because unlike the other two you see there, it has a dry stone wall keeping it in place. So my study area, here we go. Just gonna take a sip. So, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm interested in West 
and South Yorkshire, which takes in that whole area there. Um, I'm particularly interested in how or where the charcoal evidence of charcoal uh, production is in regards to ancient woodland. I've deliberately sort of looked at ancient woodlands over other woodlands, principally because an ancient woodland um, we know has been there since at least the 1600s. And um, uh, if it's been there that long, it's probably been there a lot longer. And it's going to preserve within it evidence of woodland management, which will include charcoal production. Whereas uh, a woodland that isn't regarded as ancient might be, I don't know, planted 50 years ago or after charcoal production took place. That's not to say I'm ignoring um, other woodlands that aren't ancient, because when this data set that you're looking at here was produced, they were looking at areas of ancient woodland over the size of two hectares, I believe. So there's areas of woodland out there that are ancient, but fall beneath that. And there is a, a program of works going on in the area at the minute by the various authorities to kind of update that record and look at all of their, their woodlands that they own to see, well, do we have some ancient woodlands that have slipped the net? So um, I, will, I am kind of touching on those sort of areas in my research too. And on that map there, the ancient woodland is standing out because it's highlighted in a dark green. So my methodology, well, to begin with, I wanted to do, obviously you see the size of the area, I wanted to do a landscape uh, desk-based investigation, get pulled together all of the known information that's out there from uh, the likes of West Yorkshire archaeology, uh, South Yorkshire archaeology, um, the South Pennines Park or Pennine Prospects. Well, they did a big community um, investigation of woodlands of, of that region. Um, and as I started my investigations, their reports hadn't yet gone into, into the West Yorkshire um, uh, historic environment record. Um, I'm also looking at um, uh, the Peak District National Park as well and the National Trust because they have their sites and monument record as well and reports regarding archaeological investigations in the area. So what I want to do is pull all these reports together and look at what has been done within ancient woodlands and woodlands around the area that can signify, you know, or highlight the distribution of the charcoal industry in the region. Of course, there's the historic archives, and we've already seen a few of those records for historic um, uh, charcoal production in the area. And then place name evidence as well um, can be a really good indicator of perhaps how the woodland was used in the past, or at least how old a woodland is, because you'll have a, a Scandinavian name Anglo-Saxon, Norman, Frank, um, French name for, for a location that indicates that it's been there for a long time. So there's a map there, for example, that shows a little bit of Warncliffe Woods. You probably can't read it, but that says Broomhead Spring. So whenever you see the name Spring appear, uh, it represents a woodland that was managed once as a coppice, i.e. trees were cut down low and left to grow back to create multiple straight shoots, multiple trunks that they could harvest over a rotation um, 
for charcoal production, but also construction materials as well, um, and, and so on. The next phase, after all the desk-based stuff, was to pick some locations to actually do some ground survey, uh, reconnaissance archaeological field surveys, as it says up there. And I've identified five woodlands. Uh, so one near at the top there, Shipley Glen, which is near Saltaire, where Bradford, uh, Wade Wood, which is not far from Hebden Bridge, which is just there. Um, CSO 22, uh, down on the bottom left-hand corner, is in the Upper Derwent Valley. That's Coldside Oaks. Interesting place because it's no longer a woodland. It's, it's open, kind of rough pasture leading onto moorland. Um, Warncliffe Woods, and at the bottom, Lady Spring Woods at Beechief as well. And the purpose of doing these investigations was to firstly develop a narrative, as it says there, of land use and woodland management. And that is not just to go in there and identify charcoal burning platforms. I want to go in there and identify everything. So ancient tree or ancient veteran trees, uh, field boundaries, woodland boundaries, park pales, um, ruins of cottage sites, mill sites, weirs, trackways, um, absolutely anything I can come across that relates to human interaction on that area of landscape. So at the end, I can stand there and produce a narrative of yeah, how that landscape has evolved and changed over time. So there's a photo at the bottom left-hand corner there. That's from Shipley Glen. Actually has a, a World War II home guard um, trench system in it. Um, because they were worried there, it faces Belden Moor, and a large kind of flat area would be ideal for if the Germans wanted to come in during the Second World War and land their gliders and do a parachute drop. So they have multiple, and a few of them are actually listed as um, scheduled monuments in that area relating to the Second World War, and these are additional ones to add, add to the list. Um, and then it's to go in, of course, to identify charcoal production sites, charcoal burning platforms within these woodlands too, um, which would then help me identify other locations to do an excavation. As I've identified all these features though, whether they're charcoal platforms or not, we've um, I've produced um, management recommendations as well, so that at the end, when this grey liter literature report produced for the landowners arrives on their desk, not only can they look at it and go, oh yeah, I got all this heritage, that's great, but they've also got a bit of advice uh, using some of the statutory guidance as well from Forestry Commission and English Heritage and the like, and, and go, ah, I need to consider managing it like this when I want to clear some trees out or plant some trees, or if you have a cottage site or a ruin, the ruins of something, and there's brambles growing out the side of it and loads of sapling beach, beach trees growing next to it, then the advice would be you need to get control of that. Otherwise, that archeological, that um, heritage feature is going to kind of <coughs> worsen, uh, deteriorate over time. Excuse me. The third phase of the, the 
the research is um, going into a, an excavation. So from each of the woodlands, I wanted to select one charcoal burning platform to dig up. And of course, I couldn't do it all by myself. I needed people like Steve there to come along and, and help out and, and, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and, other, and, and others in the crowd uh, to come and support. Because one of the key elements of my research too is to make it as open and accessible as possible. So it wasn't simply for university folk to come in and have a good fun and dig around, but it was also for the general public and school groups to come along and visit as well and have a go. So it was meant to be fun. It was meant to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Not, well, no, I, I didn't invite you for the fun bit. Um, <laughs> in, in the rain, sliding down the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my digging trousers never got cleaned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't pick my sights very close to car parks either. Yeah. Um, but so what did I want to do whilst excavating these? Uh, not just dig them up and have a look, but I wanted to assess how much charcoal there is on the site to give me an idea of perhaps their wood selection choices. We are excavating down, as many of you know, you have different layers of soil that you come across. And if the species of charcoal or the tree species represented by the charcoal changes, within each of those layers, then it can give me an idea of, well, fuel sources they're A, choosing, but also it might give me an indication of what the woodland looked like as well. So I may be able to capture how the woodlands have changed over time. Um, the historic woodland management strategies. Basically, if I can count the growth rings where I have complete um, twigs or branches, then it might give me an idea of how often people were returning to that woodland between each one of those soil layers that we encounter to repeat the process of making charcoal. So were they coming back every eight years, 15 years, 30 years? Um, and in doing so, kind of establish a bit of a chronology of charcoal production on each platform. Um, in support of that, and this is something I've not yet done, I need to analyze some samples from the very top of my excavations and the very bottom and uh, send those off for radiocarbon dating because it will give me a, an end date and beginning date of when these platforms might have been in use for. Uh, I've already sort of touched on how the woodland canopy and ground floor might have changed, or at least the woodland canopy might have changed by looking at the charcoal. What I'm also looking at is the pollen that's in there. Um, and trying to work out from that that trees that perhaps are appearing in the record that weren't used for charcoal as well as those used for charcoal. But also any evidence of ground flora that might give me an indication of how open the woodland was, how close to moorland it was. I don't know. But uh, I've got to look at the. I've got to look at this. This is a new skill I'm learning. Thanks to uh, Dr. Le Emily Forster over there. Uh, <laughs> um, and how, what's it say at the bottom there? Oh, John, could have supported contemporary. And how environmental evidence of charcoal burning platforms could support modern tree planting schemes. I already mentioned cold side oaks in the upper Derwent Valley. Uh, there's no woodland there today. They've recently planted it back up. Um, I'm not sure how successful it's been though. But if you have an area where, which was once wooded and managed 
as a, an effective woodland and charcoal was produced, then can the archaeological record identify high, or highlight the species that once grew there and therefore provide the individual that wants to grow a new woodland there the, the information of ensuring they get the best tree planting in the right place, right place. Okay. Um, there is a sort of caveat there as well, because as we go through with climate change and if temperatures are going to increase, it might be that an oak tree wouldn't be suited to cold side oaks because it would be just too hot and exposed or, or whatever it is. But it, it might it, it might demonstrate how archaeology can kind of support tree planting schemes. Okay. And the methodology of excavating one of these was each platform, each charcoal burning platform involved two excavations. One that was on the surface of the platform itself, as it shows you there, one meter by two meter in size, and another one that was downslope of the charcoal production site. The reason being is that if you imagine you, you have a, you, you do your charcoal burn on the surface of the platform, at the end of it, you want to prepare that platform for your next burn, uh, whether it's like immediately or later on. So any waste that happens to be there, you're probably going to scrape downhill. And when you look at a lot of charcoal uh, production sites, the description there was of like a compacted or flattened area for charcoal production. But when you look at them, they have a sort of, they call it an apron, but it's a little embankment, a lip on the downward slope of the charcoal platform, which represents where all the waste has been dumped after burns. And so I was particularly interested in that because in theory, if I could get to the bottom of one of those lips, then I would have evidence of when, or rough evidence of the first phase of charcoal production on that platform. Um, so that was where I was getting my, my samples from. And from each of the horizons, the soil layers that we came across, I was collecting uh, 30 litre bulk samples and uh, uh, getting Steve to carry it back to my car over a distance of two kilometres or so, um, <laughs> uphill. <laughs> um, I gave you a run up sometimes. There were a bit of downhills before the up. <laughs> and then, Coming across like secure samples of really good bits of charcoal, um, we're wrapping those in tin foil and taking them away for the radiocarbon dates as well. Also using these tins, knocked into the side of the trench uh, so I could preserve the, the soil profile and cut that out, take it back to the labs and then take one centimeter uh, subsamples from each of the layers preserved in that tin to uh, produce for pollen analysis. So we'll start with a known archaeological record. So phase one of the investigation, getting that data set together from uh, West Yorkshire, South Yorkshire's HERs, the National Trusts and South Pennines Park. And you can see that kind of scatter of spots on the map there uh, representing I was very technical. You should have heard my, my sound effects uh, Saturday night playing Alien versus Predator. It was brilliant. Um, 
um, but that those locations there all represent archaeological woodland survey reports um, across the study area. And you notice straight away there's quite a lean to the left there, to the west of that map. Um, at this point, I should probably also say that there is a sort of bias. It's accidental bias. It's not uh, deliberate. But where you have all the orange splodges at the top there, there's a concentration because that's their work remit, the South Pennines Park, Pennine Prospects as it was, uh, was very much within the South Pennines that ends here. So theirs are all very much concentrated in there. And then we have the reports of fueling the revolution uh, of uh, produced by uh, NAA. They're all part of ECUS now, aren't they? But they are all concentrated down here. So that's two projects kind of um, yeah, dominating the data set there. And in total, there's 71 Woodland Survey reports. I've got five to go and read in uh, Sheffield uh, or in South Yorkshire Archaeology's uh, HDR on Friday this week uh, because they're not digitized. Um, so I, the, uh, the numbers are going to change. But in all, you've got 15 reports there from Wyas, 14 from South Yorkshire, 12 from South Pennines Park within that area. And in addition to that, there were nine monument records basically recorded on cards to general observations where a histor historical society had walked past and gone, there's some charcoal burning platforms in that wood. The end. You know, and so, so, <laughs> so there's a few of them and they're marked on there with black dots. In the case of three of those as well, they also include community uh, projects, excavations as well. Uh, one of them, as I've already mentioned, Hardcastle Crags, and there was something going on in there. Uh, Buckwood up here as well, uh, near Bradford. And compiling all those reports and sifting through them all, there's a total of 368 charcoal burning platforms recorded in those reports. It's a massive underestimation uh, for, for the area. And we know there's more than that. Um, but the reports for them aren't in the HER. They're kind of scattered around and a bit difficult to find. So that's that. And there's a big kind of lean on Eckersall Woods down the bottom here, where I've, I'm yet to find a, an archeological report that references it, but in all the council uh, documentation, it mentions over 200 charcoal burning platforms within Eckersall Woods. I could believe it, but I haven't found the report. So I've included it in there anyway, with a bit of a bit of a caveat. Um, but the one where I do know there are an awful lot is 84 within Hardcastle Crags area of woodland up there. Um, but of course, you can see again that massive lean where everything's on the left hand side. Oh, yeah, 
left-hand side of the map. Sorry, I need another sip of water. But why? Why are the sites distributed across the study area like this? What about the east of the area? Um, well, what I thought I'd do is look at place name evidence, as I mentioned at the start there, as, a, as an indicator for how long a woodland has been in use for. And so the, the place name evidence I'm using here is coming from the ancient woodland inventory, but it's also coming from the Ordnance Survey. Uh, open source data as well. Um, and so it is including place names that are uh, not just ancient woodland, but all woodlands. And in this case here, I've picked or highlighting the location of woodlands with historic names that would suggest a long established woodland. So these are Scandinavian, Anglo-Saxon, Norman uh, names such as Hurst, Grieve, Holt, Shrog and Storff and to highlight, right, okay, if, if you've got a woodland with that name, it's been there quite some time. It's well established. And so you can see we've got a lot appearing, particularly in the east there, of Holt all around Doncaster. Also names to do with directly with woodland management. I mentioned spring earlier, but we have copy or coppice, a stub, stubbing, hag, holling, fall, all to do with woodland management. Again, how you manage your trees, holling being directly uh, related to holly trees. Um, bowl, I'm not sure if bowl should be there. It might need to be an in industry. I'm not quite sure yet because if we go to interest industry, I've not got it in there, but bowl or bowl hill can be a reference to lead smelting um, and a, a form of open air lead smelting. But woodland industry as well, charcoal appearing at least twice in the, in the north there, one in Wakefield, one near, in Bradford district, forge, cinder, smelt, smith, coal and lime. Uh, so all of these you know, potentially relate to charcoal. Um, as, so using the place names as kind of highlighting where charcoal production may have taken place in relation to place names. But you have to be careful, of course, with place names because there's names out there like burnt. And originally I thought burnt would be a, you know, a big tick in a box or oh, burnt wood. It's definitely going to have something to do with charcoal. But it actually comes from the Scandinavian to mean um, clearing through fire. So it's not to do with charcoal production at all. So you have to be slightly uh, careful with your place name evidence. Also got the historic archives. Now I've not managed to get to the archives good and proper yet, but I do have a various kind of uh, accounts in my, in my back pocket I can, I can pull up on. Um, so in areas where the known archaeological record is missing, there seems to be a lot missing around Barnsley, which I was surprised about. But if we have a record there from 1720 Colton near Barnsley, to dig and get clods and cover in the said woods for covering the said bark and coaling the charcoal. Um, so basically describing part of the process of, you know, 
producing the charcoal. Hexborough again, uh, sufficient turf and hillage, basically, like the photos you saw earlier, all that turf and vegetation that sealed the, the stack of wood uh, for coaling of the woods. And then West Breton Wakefield, uh, the woods of the said <laughs> mess shall be cold. Um, so we've got records there and I thought, well, so these are clear indications that charcoal production is happening in those areas where the, the contemporary records, obviously the, the archaeological records are missing out. So I thought I'd do a mini desk based kind of assessment on each location. So here, Col Colton, Barnsley, have a nice uh, 1850s map here. Uh, Colton, just there. And then North, North Royd Wood, big, big area of woodland there. Um, uh, Royd suggesting woodland clearance or enclosure of the woodland. Uh, so that's, that's again a, a contender as a, an ancient woodland location. It's been there for a a long time. So that's in 1850s. The early 1920s, 30s, that's the same location, but hopefully you can see a railway lines chipping through the, uh, the side of it there and then extending out towards a colliery site down in here. So you're starting to see this woodland being kind of eaten up until that's what it looks like today, where urban development has seen it entirely cleared. So that's one of the reasons perhaps why we're not finding the, the uh, uh, evidence of charcoal production within areas in the east of the study area, because you've got urban expansion, expansion of fields as well, um, because it is fertile, good land for farming. When we go to Kexborough, Barnsley, um, a lot of this woodland, in fact, you can see it's all, the, the woodland that's highlighted in green there represents ancient woodland. So it's still there today. Uh, we know charcoal production was going on there. But when we look at this map, or this LIDAR survey, and you're looking through the, the canopy, all those circular dots down there all represent um, bell pits, coal mining. And you can see the density of that. If there was any evidence of charcoal burning platforms there, they're going to be gone. Uh, what you also have in here as well is it's not particularly steep. The, 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 the gradient is very kind of undulating across there too. If you think back to those photos at the beginning where if you've got a platform constructed into a side of a steep hill, you're going to see it. If you've got a platform constructed into a gently undulating slope, you're less likely to see it. And so I've kind of gone through this data set in the rest of the woodland, and all I can pick out in there is the odd woodland boundary or drainage ditch or quarry, such as that little pimple up there and a little quarry in there too. So industry can have a major impact. And we go to West Breton. A lot of this now is Yorkshire Sculpture Park down here. Um, but in the north, we've got long-standing ancient woodland up here too. And I thought, oh, we'll definitely find some charcoal platforms in here until I looked at the, the lay of the land. And I'm sorry that the, 
yeah, the, the elevation colors don't quite stand out on here, but you've got kind of high ground here and then it's all relatively level. I think the, the, the elevation changes one meter over a distance of something between 18 and 30 meters. So you can imagine someone constructing a platform in that area to produce charcoal, not having any issues at all because it's relatively flat. Um, and as such, you're not really identifying the charcoal burning platforms in that area. So the factors, as I've mentioned, topography can be a factor. Vegetation too can be a massive factor, especially if you're surveying these places on foot. There were large areas of Warncliffe Wood, for example, that were just an absolute nightmare to get through because even in the depths of winter, the brambles were this high. Uh, I need new trousers. They got ripped to shreds. Um, <laughs> and eventually I just gave up and thought, ah, <laughs> I'd recorded enough and I'll probably catch it on LIDAR as well. So that's one of the, one of the cheats. Uh, industry and agriculture having a major effect as well, as we saw at Colton, the clearance, settlement too. Um, also change in the woodland management, where you have an area of ancient woodland. Uh, I should have mentioned this for Kexborough. Um, a lot of it is conifer uh, plantation now. And if you look at the LIDAR really closely, you can see where they've ploughed it before planting the trees. So that too is going to have an effect on erasing any evidence of your charcoal industry in these, in these locations. And then right at the bottom there, funding opportunities available. You know, it's just undertaking an archeological woodland survey is um, a bit of a nicety sometimes rather than a, a necessity. So my five case study woodlands. So that map there shows you where they all are. Um, Saltair, Wade Wood, Lady Spring, Warncliffe, Coldside Oaks. So they're quite scattered across the area. Um, I'm not going to go through each one of these woodlands and go, and oh, I found this, and I found that, and, and it was used like this, um, because because uh, a lot of them are quite sim similar. But what I will do is kind of Warncliffe Wood sort of encapsulates a lot of the types of archaeology that we were coming across. So it's a huge area. I mean, it looks bigger on that map, but the map I saw initially when I picked the site was, you know, it was only about that big. I thought I'd do it in a day, but, you know. <laughs> Two weeks plus later, and I still need to go back. Uh, there's an awful lot going on in there. Um, but some of the great heritage in there is the trees themselves, uh, particularly along where you have the, the escarpment up here and this area all the way on the on the upslope. Absolutely fantastic, that top right photo there of a, uh, one of many um, coppice trees, I would say, that have been left to grow out and do its own thing um, growing up there. There's a fair few pollarded trees up there too, which is like coppicing, but you're chopping the tree back higher up in the, um, up in the canopy. Uh, and they're situated on boundaries coming down the side of the hill. Um, you've got, uh, as I said, boundaries, fantastic ones, big bank ditch boundaries um, 
some of them marking potentially or potentially representing a park pale because in the 1400s this area up here the chase was turned into a deer park um, but a lot of them representing woodland compartment boundaries so within the woodland there's multiple kind of named historic woods like stead spring broomhead uh, spring Hague's wood todwick wood um, yeah Uterbridge hag i think is another one um, all within there, all separated by boundaries, whether they're banks, ditches, drainage ditches, watercourses, or dry stone walls, they're all in there. Uh, massive quarries as well, and mines. I'm sure, I don't know if many of you have been to Warncliffe Wood, but one of the dominating features there is these massive scars in the side of the hill on this west-facing slope here, where in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, they were mining for ganister to create fire uh, heat resistant bricks for the furnaces. So there's a lot of that going on up there. And you can sort of see highlighted on the Ordnance Survey, this big scar here, a huge one up here, and that's this here. So this is just one trackway going through, but where you see the top of the hill there, that's the, that, that is the top of the quarry where they've cut in and extended out that way. Uh, great for off-road biking as well, which is a favorite pastime out there at the minute. And then of course, bottom right-hand photo is a charcoal burning platform of which there were a fair few in this woodland. Um, so where I couldn't, I did a good job at getting around all of this and a fair bit of this, but there were areas on this slope that which is dense with ground vegetation uh, that I just couldn't penetrate, just couldn't get in, um, didn't have the willpower in the end either, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> um, so I kind of turned to things like LIDAR to lend a hand. Um, so I could look at the, the landscape in relief as a, a slope model or a hillshade model. And I hope straight away you can sort of see the scars there, there, and then down the bottom there. Oh, and that one there, all representing these massive ganister mines that were put into the into the side of the hill to get get at that, um, that bedrock material. Um, you just hopefully you just about make out some trackways as well in there. But if I zoom in to an area that's represented down the bottom here, there's a zoom in to one of the massive quarries that's there, the trackways. Um, Interesting thing about the tracks, like this one, I think this is called Plank Gate. You've got another one just up here called Stock, is it Stockhorn Gap? Um, and there's another, I can't remember, is it Chase, Chase Gate, something like that, up on the top here, or Pale Gate. Um, I was interested in the use of gate for a lot of these names. And apparently, I need to look more into it, but there was a medieval, um, tax regarding gates as trackways through woodlands, like a toll, uh, a toll charge for traveling through large areas of woodlands. So it was interesting because there's about five of the main tracks around there all end with gate. And I wonder if it has a reference to that, but that's something for me to look at on another occasion. Um, but, you can, but you can see there uh, the tracks, the quarries, 
Um, but hopefully you can make out these little white splodges dotted on there, little little spots. Well, they are our charcoal burning platforms in that area. And these are the ones that, well, these are the locations are surveyed. So the white dots, like there, 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 they represent the ones that I identified on the ground. What the LIDAR has allowed me to do is look at other kind of extrapolate and go, well, I've confirmed them as charcoal burning platforms. These look like the exact same form and character, so they're likely to be charcoal burning platforms as well. So LIDAR in this instance, where I couldn't get into those areas because the vegetation was too, it was just impassable, um, I can use LIDAR as a, as a support. And at the end, I've had to put the map on its side because it doesn't quite work uh, as um, portrait. Um, but all of the white dots you can see in that area represent charcoal burning platforms record recorded in the survey so far. 119 of them, um, which is quite a lot. Uh, and that's uh, by no means, you know, all of them. Because there's certain areas of the woodland, like up here, I didn't find any. Again, vegetation was problematic in, in, a, in certain areas. Um, but I'll also put it down to the topography itself. If you, if you can spot the, uh, the contour lines here, very close together, indicating it's an extremely steep slope, whereas up here, they're much further apart. So you've got a very gentle slope there. So the identifi identification of constructed level platforms in that are going to be difficult. Looked at Lady Springwoods as well at Bee Chief. And the, again, the white dots on that map, difficult to see, but there's a load up there, all representing charcoal burning platforms. So there's a lovely photo of a charcoal burning platform. Can you see it? Oh. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Uh, but compared to all the other woodlands I looked at, these ones also have cupids within there as well. And they're represented by the red dots on that map. And a cupid is also a charcoal production site, but it's for producing white coal. And I don't think many people have really done a lot of investigation into cupids and... <laughs> um, <laughs> and and uh, and white coal, <laughs> white coal. But they're um, they're supposed to be related to producing a fuel source suitable for smelting lead. So I'm assuming, in in my kind of dense mind, that it's it's producing a fuel that. Um, doesn't burn as hot as charcoal. Thanks, Toby. <laughs> um, and it's it's very much it's very much a dry, a dry piece of wood, a very dry piece of wood, rather than your charcoal. That's um, yeah, like pure carbon. And that's that. <laughs> but um, identifying these sites is uh, it is tricky, 
certainly the charcoal burning platforms, Q-pits are a lot easier to identify, especially when you've got things like LiDAR. So that bottom right-hand photo is of a Q-pit looking into it from its opening. So again, it doesn't really look like an awful lot. Hopefully you can see that it's like a little indentation in the, in the hillside there. But what we're going to now look at is whoop, this area zoomed in. Boop. And it's a little bit pixelated, but that charcoal platform that was represented on the top photo is this, where the LiDAR is picking it up. It's pick this, is this side of the map is uphill. Down here is the river. And you can see that they've cut into this hill slope. So that dark shade represents the slope at the back of the platform. The lighter patch represents the platform surface. And then that kind of shade on the lower slope, that's our apron, that's our embankment of deposited um, uh, charcoal waste. Um, there's also another charcoal platform just a little bit further up slope as well. But then where the red dot is, you can see our Q-pit represented by this pit, but then this channel or funnel coming off it. Um, and this is where they were producing their stuff. Uh, for uh, lead smelting. And I'm umming I'm, I'm and ahhing. I have been kind of counting these up as I've been doing my research, so I could kind of produce distribution maps. They do dominate within the Sheffield area, which is unsurprising because we're closer to uh, the lead sources. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't really know where, where to take that. I feel like it's one of them, yeah, are just going to get absorbed down some tunnel of horrors away from my charcoal burning platforms. And, you know, perhaps it's like PhD two, he says, <laughs> who does that? <laughs> so we did the woodland surveys. We have all this data set about how these woodlands were used and managed over time from prehistory. We have evidence of prehistory at Shipley Glen um, in the form of, uh, uh, Timber like this, cup and bring mark stones, uh, a few hut platforms as well. Um, and in the case of Shipley Glen as well, all the way through to the Second World War. And it was a sort of, yeah, well-documented woodland landscapes, how they were used, how they were removed in the past and maybe used for fields for a time and then woodland regenerated. Um, I then picked my platforms I wanted to excavate. And uh, here's a nice collage of people hard at work. Um, so the top right photo there is of uh, Shipley Glen. Top left, cold side oaks. Was it cold there? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, bottom left is uh, Wade's Wood, mid middle, bottom, um, again, cold side oaks. Bottom right, uh, Lady Springs. And I'm just going to kind of skim over the top of the uh, of, of these kind of summaries because my research is ongoing. My analysis of the and what we got from these excavations uh, continues. But we have our trench one was always on the surface of the platform, so uh, you could see there our trench. So charcoal-rich soil down onto a sandy soil underneath, and that sandy soil very much represents the, the original surface of the platform. There was no need to dig any further into that. Um, 
because that was it. Um, and you can see from the bottom left-hand photo, we were getting charcoal from there. And we were knocking tins into the side of the trench as well, so we could extract our samples for pollen analysis. Uh, again, trench two, this time on the downward slope. This platform had a kind of crumbly dry stone wall, retaining wall on it, and this is running downhill. But hopefully you can see the density of charcoal-rich soils in there. That's a 50 centimeter scale, if that helps. So again, ideal location for extracting our samples uh, for radiocarbon dating, charcoal analysis, pollen analysis. Wadewood in Calderdale. This was quite a nice one because once we got through the charcoal rich soils, we came onto this clay surface there, which looks red and it's red because it's been burnt. It's where the stack was on the last firing and it's burnt the clay. What we also have here is uh, evidence of resurfacing of the platform as well from that bottom right hand corner. Hopefully you can see this yellow patch, but beneath it there's another dark patch of charcoal rich soil and underneath there again another burnt layer of clay. So you've got two phases of charcoal production on that platform. Uh, yeah, bulk samples taken away. Yay! Um, <laughs> this one again, wade wood down slope, crumbling dry stone wall, retaining wall. Uh, one of the problems we did have with wade wood, Warncliffe, and cold side oaks was that we found charcoal burning platforms very attractive to badgers and other burrowing animals. And so they particularly like that downslope edge where all that soft deposits are. So when it comes to getting our radiocarbon dates and sort of secure context charcoal, I'm a little bit iffy, but we'll find out. And then cold side oaks, different sort of structure, very rubbly underneath all of the charcoal rich topsoil. <laughs> and then on the downslope there, again, you can, hopefully you can see all the, the little burrows into there, um, making a, a good mess of things. Well, what was the result? Well, you'll have to wait. <laughs> that being said, I'm hoping it's going to be something like this. I am almost finished, I promise you. Um, this was an excavation undertaken at a place called Hurstwood at Saltaire uh, as part of Celebrating Woodland Heritage Project. Um, my colleague Howell Lewis, or Dr. Howell Lewis now, he undertook the um, charcoal analysis on the site and Emily here undertook the pollen analysis of the site at assessment level and we very much wanted to ask those similar questions that I'm trying to find out. And so um, at the bottom there, it kind of says from the charcoal analysis, there was very much 50% uh, or over 50% was oak, roundwood, 15 millimeter diameter uh, radius. There was birch and hazel there as well between the layers. But looking at the growth rings on those roundwoods that we had, you could see that there was a crop rotation of 10 to 15 years that people were coming back to produce charcoal again. Um, I can't see what it says at the bottom. And at the bottom there, it says at lower levels, <laughs> uh, there's evidence that there was actually a 30-year 
crop uh, rotation there too. Oh, am I missing a slide? Oh, I skipped one. And then when we looked at the pollen, which um, is uh, poor preservation, but it did indicate that the woodland was relatively open in the past. Um, and alder dominated in the, the horizon just beneath the uh, topsoil, which is interesting, but we also had hazel, birch and grasses. Uh, but there was very limited oak, which is interesting because the oak dominated the charcoal record. And so there's a, a discussion there to be had as, well, was the oak not getting, was it not getting grow, having time to grow to the correct age to produce pollen? Because I think it's around the 30 year mark that oak starts to produce pollen. Emily could correct me if you wanted to, but I think it's, <laughs> but it's um, so, so you got, so that in itself is a bit of an indicator of how often people were coming back um, to harvest wood for charcoal making. <gasps> Thank you. Thank you, all of the volunteers. Thank you, Chris. Uh, does anybody have any questions? Oh, hands going up everywhere. <laughs> okay. Um, is there any information about whether they were growing, whether they were using different woods to make charcoal for different purposes? Yeah, there is. There is. Um, the, the one that springs to mind is um, alder being used for gunpowder. Um, yeah. So they they were, yeah, yeah. Two from here. Um, as far as Exel Woods go, you, you said there's a, a kind of a, an apocryphal or a unsubstantiated number of two hundred mm. platforms. Could it be two hundred cupids? No, because there was a there was a there was a survey undertaken. Oh, I can't remember when. Not not that long ago, really. But they they. They looked at cupids mm. in particular and surveyed them all to well over a hundred. Mm. Can't remember the exact number. Well, that, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. I remember hearing ten-ish years ago of um, the Friends of Ecclesall Woods funded laser scanning of cupids mm. and, uh, and tried to build a typology of you know, the double ones and the yeah. big ones and the small ones. And I don't know that they managed to get a coherent story of what the different types. Yeah, we're connected to. Uh, a general question: If you if you find one, if, if you find a, a platform and you dig into it and there's charcoal, then it's a charcoal site. By eye, when it's covered with leaves, are they distinctive? Uh, you can often see it in areas of erosion, or if you just kind of scuffed a bit of um, leaf litter away, you'd probably see charcoal flecks on the surface, mm -hmm. uh, and they are very distinctive to kind of pick out as well because. Unlike most things, they're, they're always constructed to like an oval or a circular shape. You do get the odd rectangular one, but um, yeah, they do stand out. Yeah, once you've got your eye in, I guess. Mm. But yeah, just a slight follow-on <clears throat> when it comes to identifying them as charcoal burning platforms. Um, has proximity to water sources and rivers been a contributing factor in terms of saying this is one, or have you found any that have not been near water sources? Yeah, it's. I found, yeah, I, I don't think there's any plan to it really. Some of them are next to water sources, others are quite a way away. Um, yeah. 
I have kind of kept it in mind whilst doing the surveys when, when I've done it. And it, it was clearer, I think the best, I think Harcastle Crags when I surveyed that years back, that, that was the best kind of example where you found charcoal platforms next to water sources, like all these natural streams coming off the side of the hill. Um, but yeah, on the whole, not really. What do you mean much water? Was it just quench Yeah, yeah. Did you do that when you did it? Yeah, we had a few gallons there. We did have quite a bit. Um, can't remember how much we went through now. Sweet. <laughs> oh, um, so you talked about there being sort of different turnover times of when they were sort of uh, having a proper rotation over time. Did you notice across like the survey area there being different approaches to sort of methodology with from what you could tell in like said the north compared to the south? Uh, not yet, not yet. That's what I'm doing at the minute is analysing the charcoal, counting those rings, and then hopefully by the end of next year I'll be able to go, oh, it's different there, right. it's different here. And yeah. Yeah, so I'm not there yet. <clears throat> Your, your charcoal makers are spending most of their time in the woods mm. next to the charcoal pits. Is there any evidence of that? Because obviously they, 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 you know, they, they famously had made huts. Yeah, little platforms are sometimes next to them. I did record a few platforms around, uh, not that many, to be honest, that would you would kind of yeah clearly say, yes, with confidence. That's where they had a hut. Not going to make much impact on, on there was no. somebody who used to live there. There was somebody who well, uh, died, died, died there, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, I, but I certainly, with the surveys, recorded, you know, platforms yeah. around. So if there is one, I should have picked it up, but I can't say that's definitely what it is. Okay. Yeah, okay. So talking about the people, mm. was it a kind of specialised thing that somebody would have gone round different places and made charcoal for people, or was it kind of part of a, a, a sort of overall agricultural job that people did? Yeah, it's, farming jobs? yeah it, it certainly um, appears to have started as like a specialist job itinerant worker charcoal burners going round but as time progressed they did it was very much like a an all-round agricultural laborer uh, particularly picking up records in uh, the colder valley where it is yeah the, the local laborers coming in and producing it at this particular time <laughs> yeah i guess <laughs> Um, so most of the examples you had were ones a bit onto slopes because as you maybe you sometimes notice. So I was curious as to are there any tells of the charcoal pit that was built onto flatter land, like for example, do different things grow there? Is there any way to You can look yeah. Uh, I've kind of looked at charcoal platforms and the sort of stuff that grows on them. And uh, as I mentioned with the, the management recommendations, I kind of list the species that are sort of growing on archaeological features. But it's like at Hurstwood, for example, I got to uh, one, there's only two charcoal platforms there. One of them was covered in ivy and the other one was just covered in bluebells. And it was like, well, you know, <laughs> I'm down there trying to build a story, I forgot, the species that are on these platforms. And yeah, it sort of varies. It's not quite straightforward. So it's all, yeah, soil sciences, I guess, and whatever that is. Um, but um, there has been... I know Bradford University in their archaeology department, they have spent a bit of time 
using geophysics in essence to identify charcoal production sites in, in woodland. So they would pick them up in areas where it's flatter, particularly if they're using like a magnetometer or so, because they'll pick up the burn areas. So you could do it that way within your flat area woodland, if you really wanted to do it. <laughs> when you did your experimental uh, bird. So it, you said it went for 48 hours. So were you there overnight? And did you yeah, yeah. Yeah, the whole time we had to tense. Um, didn't need a campfire. We were all right on that. We were, <laughs> uh, cider, actually. We were cider and uh, locally delivered pizza. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, were, we had to be there the whole time. And as you say, we did it in shifts. And, yeah. Yeah. How much wood? Did, how much charcoal did you get out? Oh, a lot. Um, Against how much wood did you put in? What sort of oh, what sort ratio did you get? Yeah, just under half, I guess. Um, with the wood, it wasn't too bad though. It kept us going with barbecues. Barbecues, like that. Yeah, we all went back with massive sacks full of charcoal. Following on from that, are you able to do any sorts of rough calculations to try and work out whether? all those pits or halves are being used at once or mm. whether on different rotations they're opening up different pits because the interesting about phasing yeah yeah um i don't know how i'd be able to do it no not with like mass excavation <laughs> um yeah i i, I would imagine I've always kind of thought that they'd have multiple burns going on at the same time and they would move around um, because you could do that. It was quite leisurely for us, for example, on that 48 hours just to sit there and go, oh, there's a hole in it again and patch it up, you know, every four hours or whatever it was. So, um yeah, and I guess with half, it's not so not quite so much work to mm. to create the 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 place that you need. With white cola, it just constantly bamboozles me that they have like a hundred pits yeah. rather than just bringing it to to a few. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there a seasonality to the work at all, like for charcoal burning? Yeah, I think it's lower um, earlier in the year oh. is the preferred time to do it. Um, in in spring, oddly, okay. spring and early summer. At least that's yeah. That's where I understand it anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, can I ask about? Oh yes, you started off talking about them as pits. They dug a hmm. hole. Why why would they have stopped doing that? Because that seems quite good to me. That's scale. A, yeah. Don't yeah. know. Don't know. Uh, techniques change, I suppose. Um, perhaps they um, could produce more charcoal. Yeah, it's because you've got increase of industrialization of new as you're going through medieval times. And... Have you found any of the bits? No, I've not. No. I've got a couple of reports I need to read about uh, some potential Romano British pits around Leeds. Um, yeah. But no, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, on that, can we just say once again thank you to Chris?
As you realise, Chris has been wearing a, a microphone, so this thing will be made into a podcast if uh, I can get my finger out and remember how to use the software, which should be up on the Archaeology, Archaeology Podwork Podcast Network song, uh, in the next couple of weeks. And we will be back here in a month's time, hopefully with Is There Another Doctor in the House, which will be a Zoo Archaeology special. Excellent. Let's please take drinks. Enjoy the food and uh, thank you for attending. Thank you. I'm going to miss this. Thank you for listening to Archaeology and Ale. For more information about our podcast and our guest speaker, please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. See you next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.